0: Hey, I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I just finished talking with Carlos Rojas about his really inspiring and, and I think very fascinating new book, Homesickness: Culture, Contagion, and National Transformation in Modern China. This came out in 2015 with Harvard University Press, and it's really, for me, a model of what interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary work can look like. So among the many things that I really admire about this book are the ways that it creates conversations among fields and ideas that we might not otherwise think of as being in deep dialogue with one another, and these include the practice and histories of disease, of science, of health, of Chinese literature, of Chinese history, and of cinema. So, what the book does in a series of three major parts that each focus on a particular historical moment is it looks in detail at literary and cinematic products. So, works of literature, works of film, in all kinds of different formats that are in some way taking on the relationship between self and other that manifests in some kind of concern about immunity, contagion, disease, alterity. And altogether, Carlos is bringing an idea of the meme, a cultural idea of the meme, and you'll hear us talking about that at the beginning of the book, to bear on reading and rereading these works in light of ideas of health, disease, medicine, immunity, and the like, in a way that really changes both how we understand these literary and cinematic products— and also how we envision, think about, and think with the history of medicine and disease. So it's a really fascinating book. We had um, time to only barely scratch the surface of what is a very, very, very rich study. So I highly recommend getting your hands on a copy of the book and really reading through it, even if you don't think of yourself as being primarily interested in modern China, its history, literature, and film, because there's a lot here for readers who are interested interested in health, the environment, medicine, and healing. um, That's really, really rich to think with. Thank you so much for listening as ever, and I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. I'm here today to talk with Carlos Rojas about his new book, Homesickness. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Carlos, and thanks for making time to talk with me today. Thank you. So, Carlos, could you start us off as is traditional for the channel by just saying a little bit about how you came to work on Chinese literature?
1: Um, yeah, my father, I guess, does literature. He's both an author and a literature pro- professor. And so in high school, I wanted to do something very different. And I did science. I did medicine. He was very excited by that. Um, but then in college, I started off doing combination of comp lit and cognitive science and gradually sort of moved away from cognitive science towards comp lit. Um, so following a kind of Lusuni Luciani, Luciani, introductory of abandoning, abandoning medicine for literature, um, which made him sad, I think. Um, and then I guess in terms of lit, I initially did European literatures um, about halfway through college. I wanted to do something new. Uh, so I picked up Chinese and then that ended up becoming my my main focus.
0: So the book that we're talking about today actually really nicely blends um, a lot of these fields that you've talked about, medicine, science, and different respects, and also um, literature. So... Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to this particular topic? This is a book that's subtitled Culture, Contagion, and National Transformation in Modern China. And what it does is it brings together discourses of, ideas of, histories of immunity, immunology, um, the virus, and other figures from sciences and medicine, and makes them speak to and puts them in dialogue with Chinese literature from the 20th century and the 19th century. So what brought you to this particular focus?
1: Um, several things. One is exactly, I wanted to find a way of bringing my interest in literature and more broadly cultural studies back into dialogue with some of these um, uh, uh, more biological um, and scientific fields of inquiry that I had um, started off being interested in, in, in high school and college. And so that was one of my driving interests. Another thing is um, I, I, open the preface with a little anecdote from a early 19th century novel that I've long been interested in and that I wrote about in college for my senior thesis. I have a a chapter of it on in my first book and then I keep coming back to it. Um, And it's, and it's the anecdote from which I borrow the title of the book um, homesickness, which is actually kind of a, a play. It's a, um, it's a, it's an inversion and it's a, it's a translation from the original Chinese term that is coined by the novel, uh, Li Xiangbing, which doesn't mean, um, homesickness in the sense of missing home, but rather homesickness in the sense of, uh, the home generating a state of, of illness that drives one to move away from the, the space of the home itself. So it's illness as being a kind of a catalyst, uh, for a kind of a, outward movement or a dynamism. And this I found to be a very useful metaphor, a very useful um, concept that I wanted to use to kind of rethink how metaphors of illness or tropes of disease have been mobilized throughout the 20th century in China.
0: So this book that you've uh, referenced to that begins the preface is Li Ruizhen's 1820 novel Flowers in the Mirror. At least that's, I'm going to refer to the English translations for listeners who may not um, be deeply familiar with Chinese over the course of our conversation. And as you mentioned, this raises this figure of homesickness in a way that's very different from um, what listeners might be familiar with. And here, homesickness becomes um, a potential site of transformation, right? a site of dynamism and not just something That signals weakness and infirmity. Now, this is one of many works that you open up for us over the course of the book. As we move through the chapters, we're going to talk about many of them. This is one of the great things about this book. It's very much, among many other things, um, it's very much a kind of collection of openings into some really fantastic works, some of which will be more familiar to listeners and readers and some of which might be quite new for them. So the introduction also opens with a, another kind of work. This is a very different kind of work, and this is an anonymous poem that circulated through the Chinese internet in April 2008. This was a poem titled To the West, What Do You Want Us to Do After All? A Modest Tribute to Part of World History Over the Past 150 Years. And this poem introduces two tropes that will be important to the framing of the rest of the book. One, On the one hand, the trope of the sick man of Asia and we'll talk about that in a little while and the trope of yellow peril now this is part of a context that kind of takes us back to the late 19th century The late 19th century, um, and this is sort of a starting point um, in some ways of the book, this is a period where infection became a dominant metaphor in China. So can you talk, um, maybe as a way of kind of laying the foundation for what's to come, can you talk a little bit about this? What about the late 19th century um, is causing infection to be so dominant in the discourse of China?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But first, let me go back to the Internet poem, because I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, The the, the preface and introduction are kind of framed by these two texts that you just mentioned. One, the 1820 novel, Flowers in the Mirror, um, and then the other one, this very, very contemporary um, Internet poem that was released on the eve of the um, Beijing Olympics. Um, And then I try to use these two texts as a way of providing a frame for the chronological, but then also the conceptual span of the study as a whole. One of the things that interested me about this internet poem, um, was, well, it's structured as a series of parallels, um, between the ways that the West was talking about China at the, during the late Imperial and early Republican period, the way that the West talks about China now, um, and so each stanza uh, presents a, a set of contrasts between this earlier period, a uh, hundred years ago, and the contemporary period. And the, the premise is that in whereas a century ago the West was critical of China for its weakness, um, currently the West is critical of China for its strength. Um, and so it, set, it sets up a series of, of, of contrasts, right, that, that, that in the past China was – uh, uh, criticized for being the sick man of Asia um, and being the yellow peril. Now it's criticized for being the new global hegemon, um, the, new, the new global superpower. Um, and then the the the, the, the fantastic question that the that the anonymous poet is asking is, well, you know, you can't win. What which what should we do? Right. We, we um um. But then that sort of got me to thinking about what work. These metaphors of weakness, right? The sick man of Asia, the yellow peril, these these metaphors of China as weak that became popular in the late 19th, early 20th century, what work they were doing in this contemporary poem um, and the way in which the poem was essentially taking that discourse of weakness and turning it around and using it as a rallying cry for a certain kind of nationalistic um, um, validation or self-validation and so that was really one another of my entry points into this is, is thinking about not only how these metaphors are are remembered and at, 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 at the present moment but also what work they're doing at the in the late 19th early 20th century and i argue that that they were doing a similar kind of work right that they and may, that many of them um emerged as um Uh, 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 critiques as insults being directed to China from the outside, but then they were quickly mobilized by Chinese intellectuals and reformers as a catalyst or starting point for thinking about how to undertake a process of national reform. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, one of the ways that you're doing this, and this is also um, set up right at the beginning of the book, is by looking at those kinds of work using the rubric of the meme, M-E-M-E, for listeners who may not be familiar with this. And this is a notion that you introduce um, that comes from, among other places, uh, uh, Dawkins, the selfish gene. So what kind of work is the meme doing for you here? And in what ways is that helping um, think through uh, how these transformations are happening?
1: Um, Yeah, so I'm trying to do two things two interrelated things in in this uh, project. One is to think about Cultural discourses of science and of medicine—the ways that so it's not really history of medicine per se, um, but rather a uh, history of tropes or metaphors or discourses of medicine, the way went, that that they get introduced into um, literature, film, other kinds of popular discourse. Um, but then I'm also sort of reciprocally trying to think about trying to think about how we can mobilize a certain body of scientific models um to rethink how we understand cultural analysis um and then trying to bring these two approaches into into dialogue with one another so for the meme um i'm actually As you point out, I'm I'm borrowing from the work of Richard Dawkins, among others, who himself coins the term meme based on his, uh, at the time, fairly innovative and provocative rethinking of the the work done by the gene and the relationship between genes and the organisms that they inhabit. Um, uh, But then, and so I, I, I build off of that, but at the same time I use... An engagement with the notion of the meme or a sort of cultural node that um, encourages the process of self rep- re- replication um, in order to rethink the way that Dawkins himself was using it. Because for him, the meme was definitely had a subordinate uh, secondary status, and um, uh, uh, as in contrast to um, scientific discourses that he saw as having a, a greater truth value, a greater um, significance, whereas memes for him were. Just casual accidental cultural phenomena that were of of curiosity or passing interest but didn't really have the same kind of epistemological uh, uh, validity that scientific discourses did and I try to take that 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 binary that he establishes and turn it upside down into and, and to argue that we can actually think about memes in a in a, in a, in a in a serious fashion and a way that allows us to actually rethink the relationship between science and culture and these other sets of binaries that he is um, tacitly taking for granted.
0: Great. Now, this is happening in three parts of the book. um, And each of those three parts of the book is set in a particular year that forms a sort of central node for looking at um, what's happening over the course of the book. These three years each represent a moment of transformation, a kind of midway point, a point of change, a, a kind of node or a fulcrum. And these three years are 1906, 1967, and 2006. Part one focuses on 1906, and this is a part of the book um, that you term phagocytes. This is a year or a period that's halfway between the end of the Boxer Uprising, on the one hand, and the collapse of the Qing, on the other side. And you start us off here in the first chapter on reform by bringing us into a book called The Travels of Lao Tan from 1906. Lao Tsan here is an itinerant doctor. He's concerned with illness and flooding and society. And it would be great if you could, for listeners um, who aren't familiar with this work, maybe just open this work up a little bit and, and talk about what, for you, is so central that we understand um, in order to understand the larger argument you're making in this chapter.
1: Um Yeah, sure. So... Uh, going back to the issue of the years, um, I sort of borrow from uh, Chinese historian Ray Huang's uh, book um, on the Ming Dynasty, um, where he coins the phrase, uh, a year of no significance. And uh, that's kind of my starting point. I pick these three years. Um, um, they're not arbitrarily picked, but at the same time, I deliberately pick years that are not um, historical milestones, um, in a conventional sense, right? So I stay away from years like 1911, 1918, 1949, 1966, et cetera, et cetera, and instead pick years that capture, as you just put it, a, a, a moment of historical transformation, but at the same time, um, have a certain kind of arbitrariness to them. And then, and then with each year, I pick, a, a, a cluster of texts that, um, are related to that year and, uh, a significant way um, as just a way of sort of narrowing the scope of the project. Right. Um, the, the, the kind of analysis that I develop could be applied to an infinite range of different texts. And just to, to, to sort of keep it within bounds, I, I, decide decided to focus on these three um, discrete and semi arbitrarily um, um, chosen years. Um, going back to the travels of Lao Tzu, uh, one of the things that interests me is the explicit parallelism that the novel establishes between his work as an itinerant doctor, as you mentioned, and his work as a kind of a traveling uh, political advisor. Um, uh, uh, so He's simultaneously healing bodies, but then he's also offering political advice, social advice, and um, and, and implicitly sort of healing uh, political communities and, and political structures. And the novel is very explicit about that that parallel. Um, it opens with a um, a very well known um, allegorical sequence in which he is asked to heal a. Um, Uh, 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 an invalid, um, who, uh, periodically, uh, his, uh, skin erupts in these, these, uh, boils or postules, um, and the invalid is very explicitly presented as a metaphor for China. The, his name um, is is a close homophone for the Yellow River in Chinese, and so there at the very beginning you have this 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 parallelism or this equivalence between the act of healing the individual body and the act of healing the body politic, which in some ways is is the the defining kind of metaphor that that I, I look at throughout my throughout the book itself.
0: Now, one of the things that's happening in this chapter, and there's a lot that's happening in this chapter, right? Um, And we'll talk a little bit about the way that it introduces, or a trope that it introduces here, um, rivers and lakes, right, that comes up also at the end of the book, and so right. we'll, um, in a bit we'll we'll have a chance to talk about that, um, but one of the things happening here is you're explicitly pointing us to this connection between history, which here is a kind of text, and what's happening here um, in this book, and because this connection between history and literature is so important um, in very different ways, but in many different ways throughout the book, can you talk a little bit about how that's playing out here, and specifically you talk about um, the particular approach to reform, right? which is the title of this chapter, that Lao Tan is advocating that's very related to a particular reading of history and and Chinese classical texts um, as a feature of that history.
1: Um, Yeah, absolutely. So you're actually asking... Two separate venture related questions. Uh, one, the trope of the rivers and lakes or jianghu in, in, Chinese is, uh, uh it, it's, it's a sort of a longstanding, uh, trope that's been used in a variety of different contexts, uh, um, in the 20th century is probably best known for its use in, uh, a set of, uh, wuxia novels and films or night around, uh, novels and films. Uh, and it's used to represent a space at the margins of, uh, society. Um, and I, um, identify this as a space of, um, Potential political uh, uh, restructuring and transformation. Right, it's it's um, at the margins of political uh, uh, authority that, if the community or if the political uh, structure itself is troubled, uh, corrupt, diseased, sick, um, this is a space where new possibilities can be um, explored and imagined uh, within uh, us. Uh, an arena of relative freedom. So that, as, as you point out, is one of the um, uh, uh, central, I guess, conceptual nodes that runs through the, the 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 book as a whole, and that I very explicitly return to at the very end to make a comment about the the broader environmental implications of the, the set of arguments that I that I try to develop in the the, the main body of the book. Um, the second part of your question was the use of history. And one of the things that runs through this particular novel, The Travels of Lao Tan*, is Lao Tzu's um, uh, uh, frequent attempts whenever he's confronted with a sociopolitical problem to find a solution by delving back into um, early Chinese history. Right? This, this, this idea that from history you can find the solution to the present um, and then I, I discuss at the end of the chapter the, 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 um, coincidence that, uh, the author of the novel, uh, Leola also played a pivotal role in the rediscovery and the interpretation, the popularization of oracle bone inscriptions, um, that were discovered at the very end of the 19th century and were basically popularized at the early 20th century and that represent because I see this this element of an uncanny return to the of China's earliest um, sort of historical traces or historical texts, and then the way in which they can play a pivotal role in encouraging the the the, the, the present to reassess its understanding of China itself and its relationship to its own past.
0: Now, at least two elements of what you just said also form very central features of what's happening in the next chapter. One of them is the use of history and the very explicitly, uh, the very explicit use of a kind of history. And the other is the notion of the uncanny. So chapter two is looking at Zengku's Flowers in a Sinful Sea. This is also from 1906, and it's written under the nom de plume Sick Man of Asia. There's a lot more going on here um, about this work um, that I, that I'll kind of skip over. Um, But feel free to talk about it um, in the course of our conversation. So this is a work that's inspired by a Chinese courtesan, Sai Jin Hua, and her relationship with German General Alfred von Waldersee. Now, she reportedly, and this is an apocryphal story, probably, as you, as you are very explicit about in this chapter, she reportedly used that relationship to convince Valdersey to order his troops to stop sacking Beijing at the end of the Boxer Rebellion. Um, and this actually becomes a trope or a theme in this work. So here, um, when discussing this work, you talk about various ways that it relates to and embodies the uncanny. So uh, probably this is a good entry um, point into this chapter. Um, So what I'll ask you is to talk a little bit about the notion of the uncanny and what is important um, for you that we understand about this Flowers in the Sinful Sea in order to understand the work that you're doing with the uncanny here.
1: Um, Sure. Um, I mean, I, I draw on the uncanny and a... Uh, I draw heavily on Freud's disu- famous discussion of the uncanny, where he plays on the re- the German the parallel German term um, uh, Heimlich, uh, Heimlichkeit or Umheimlichkeit, um, and he points out that that the the, the negation the uh, um in um, the term actually doesn't really work the way that you would expect it to because um, the equivalent. The German term essentially means "home-like," and then you add the negation to, to mean unhomelike, which is the equivalent of the English term "uncanny." But he, he argues that there's actually a lot of common ground between these two terms in in, in, in the German. Um, that that basically the home carries the, the space of the home carries this, this sense of 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 defamiliar, defamiliarization or of the unfamiliar, um, and that the that the space of the uncanny is uncanny precisely because it's in in a way overly familiar. It it, it seems um, disconcertingly uh, 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 recognizable. Um, And so I, I, I I build on that discussion that he, um, that he elaborates. And, and I argue that in both the the first and second chapter, you have um, a set of elements that are, that, that, that embody this, this paradoxical tension between both familiarity and unfamiliarity. In the first chapter, it's these historical elements that return to the present that um, are both familiar because they're from the same Chinese uh, uh, historical tradition, but at the same time, they're unfamiliar because they've been partially forgotten, like the oracle bone inscriptions that were forgotten for... 3,000 years until they were rediscovered in 1898. Um, uh, uh, In the case of uh, um, Flowers and the Sinful Sea in Chapter 2, it's elements that have returned not from the past but from abroad. And so I'm looking at the the circulation. between China and abroad and, and you mentioned that the courtesan Tsinghua, who is becomes famous for her trip to Europe and then return back to China um, where then she is perceived as both um, familiar but then is, is a kind of a site of alterity is a, is a site of exoticism and it's precisely that conjunction of familiarity and unfamiliarity that allows her to occupy this um, imaginary space as this um, figurative savior of China, right? That she came to be c- celebrated as the uh, um, apocryphal or legendary, uh, uh, um, figure that saved China from the, the, the Western imperial forces at the end of the Boxer Rebellion and convinced them to stop, stop sacking, uh, Beijing and to step down, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, but then, but her ability to do so was precisely, um, a result of her experience abroad and her experience with Walter Z, or her alleged experience with Walter Z um, um, in Germany. So, so that's, that's, and this goes back to the the discussion of the homesickness trope that, that drives the book as, as a whole. That 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 the home is um, both a site of familiarity, but then it's something that is is troubling, right? It's it's something that um, that it embodies an impulse that pushes you away from it, right? That it's 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 something that. Um, uh, 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 Folds in upon itself and 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 pushes the subject to move away and to explore new um, new spaces and new possibilities.
0: Great, thank you, Carlos, and really helpfully, I think drawing our attention to the germinal relationship between familiarity and unfamiliarity really nicely leads us to another very germinal relationship. Um, That's one feature of the next chapter on rebirth. And this is the relationship between recognition and misrecognition. So chapter three begins with Lu Shun's famous account of his decision in 1906, again, um, in this year of no significance, right? which actually turns out to be very significant, to discontinue his medical studies and instead pursue a career devoted to political reform and cultural reform as a result of a very uh, powerful classroom experience. And this is a moment and an event that's been written about quite extensively, but what you're doing, among other things in this chapter, is really turning around how we understand the significance of this event. So this is very much a new way of reading Lu Shun, and also specifically reading um, some of the works of Lu Shun. You bring us into, um, in particular at the beginning, his story, of a madman and you're you're arguing here i think compellingly that the work is presenting a kind of critique of the reform process and one of the ways that, that that's happening is through a particular way that recognition and misrecognition or the possibility of misrecognition are working here so that's um Laying the foundation by throwing a lot out there. And I'll just ask you um, to kind of open up for you. Um, what's important about how we are rereading and sort of re-coming to Diary of a Madman? And how does this relate to what's happening in terms of recognition and misrecognition here?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, Chapter 3 was really my starting point for this project. And it's something I've been tossing around Um. Uh, uh, essentially, ever since college, and so, the, and this is something I basically the, the kernel around which the rest of the book emerges, um, and and yeah, 1906 is famously the year that Lu Xun decided to to focus on literature and cultural reform, and the famous uh, lantern slide in his. Um, uh, uh, Medical class um, in Sendai in, in, in Japan, where he became uh, uh, sort of disillusioned by the side the 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 apathy that he perceived on the faces of the chinese spectators at a, an execution of a chinese um, alleged spy etc. Cetera, et cetera. this is a very famous scene everyone talks about it um, but then i was sort of interested in the fact that it's it's specifically a uh, um, a bacteriolo- bacteriology class and i began thinking what was it that he might have been watching in the class before this um, this lantern slide of the of the execution which was is explicitly presented as being something that the the professor shows after the, the main lecture is already finished. Right. Um, and, and it ha- so happens that historically, um, the period that Lucien was growing up coincides with the development of a, um, a really fundamental paradigm shift in, um, our understanding of medicine, um, and specifically our the, the the emergence of the field of immunology, right? Um, and this the the notion that the immune system functions through a process of what Ellie Metchnikoff uh, calls phagocytosis, um, wherein white blood cells um, uh, identify. Uh, uh, Malignant um, antigens or, or uh, pathogens, and and literally consume them. Phagocytosis—the term that we use for it—literally means to to, um, to consume, right? Uh, um, and and so I. Um, was very interested in the way in which um, a decade later in the um, mid-19-teens a number of authors in writing and the journal New Youth, among other journals, but new, I focus on youth in particu- New Youth in particular because it's the most influential journal in the, the new culture movement. And it's also the journal in which Lusun pu- published his famous uh, story, of Diary of a Madman. Uh, but in the years immediately preceding that story, there, there are several um, very prominent uh, articles that were published in, the, in this journal New Youth – uh, explicitly introducing this medical theory of immunology, of phagocytosis, of white blood cells, um, of white blood cells' ability to, to basically consume, um, um, foreign pathogens, et cetera, et cetera. But then what's interesting about this is that yeah. the, these same figures that are introducing these model, these medical models, uh, figures like Chen Duxiu, like Hu um, among others, uh, immediately transform these medical models into political models. Um, and and immediately. Uh, use the establish a metaphor. Use the white blood cell as a metaphor for processes of political reform, um, and the and and more specifically, the process of political reform that they're arguing that China needs at this at this very moment. Um, and so then I use that body of of immunological theory or immunology as a metaphor for political reform as a way of drawing a what I think is a kind of an interesting and innovative link between. Um Lu Xun's 1906 uh uh, uh uh Epiphany um uh upon seeing the, the execution lantern slide and then his uh uh 1918 uh dive story *Diver of a madman where it's all about Cannibalism, self-consumption—basically, um, a, a process of autoimmune failure. Um, if you bar, if you extend this metaphor of of uh, a process of consumption, but a process of consuming the s- society itself. Um, so it's basically, if you read in this way, *Diary of Madman* is not a, tr- a an allegory of the traditional failings of Chinese society, but is simultaneously can be read as an allegory of the potential failings of a reform movement that goes awry.
0: Thank you, Carlos. That's really um, a fantastic description of what's going on in the chapter. So if by the end of part one and by the end of this chapter, we have writers, Lucian and others, using the metaphor of the immune system as a model for What you call here the possibility of a reformist intervention, and as a way of understanding the limits of reform, we have, as we move to the next part of the book, um, which incorporates Chapter 4 and focuses on 1967, another way of linking uh, the discourses of what we might define as or consider as medicine – and literature. This um, 1967 year represents, among other things, another kind of halfway transition point. This is a point that's halfway between the launch of the Great Leap Forward campaign by Mao um, in 1958, and then the launch of Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening up campaign in 1978. So you bring us into the historical context, Mao swimming in the Yangtze River to signal a kind of beginning of the Cultural Revolution before bringing us into Chapter 4 which is on and entitled Revolution. Chapter 4, among other things, focuses on the film Dragon Gate Inn. Um, This is King Hu's martial arts classic. Now, in an early scene in this film, um, and there's a lot going on in this film, it sounds like a fascinating film, the protagonist realizes that an innkeeper has tried to poison him, and this leads us into a much larger and encompassing discussion of poison, but in particular, the concept of do, as it's motivating what's happening in this film, and how we can perhaps read this film to understand something larger. So, can you talk about that for us, this concept of do, and what's going on in this film. Um, so how, how do they speak to one another? And what are the broader implications of that for you?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, first, let me take a step back. So I, I picked the year 1967, as you say, because it's halfway between the, the Great Leap Forward, uh, which was a notorious failure, um, it resulted in uh, a, a multi-year famine that by many calculations uh, uh, led to the starvation of tens of millions of Chinese. Um, But it was initially um, intended to spark a process of rapid economic development. Right. Um, And then on the other side, uh, you know, precisely um, 10 years later or 11 years later um, after 1967, well, you have the great leap forward. Then you have a a decade to 1967, which is middle of the cultural revolution or the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, and then another decade later, you have the end of the Cultural Revolution, Um, uh, you have uh, the death of Mao, you have Deng Xiaoping rising to power, and the beginning of the Reform and Opening Up movement in 1978, uh, which is in some ways a mirror image of the Great Leap Forward, is also intended to spark a process of rapid economic development, but... um, in some ways, did everything that the Great Leap Forward failed to do, um, and so I'm, I'm sort of interested in that kind of that that, that historical trajectory of two attempts to um, accomplish a process of, of 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 revolutionary reform, and the way that one ends up being effectively cannibalistic and self-destructive, and the other ends up having really. Um, um far ra- ranging uh, uh transformative implications um so and then um in terms of the going back to your question about Duel, um uh he the, the the film in the in the scene that you you were just describing where uh the prot- protagonist realizes he's being po- poisoned um uh uh he calls the poison uh du and then du yao um and, and in chinese both du and yao um uh um are what we could call contronyms and that they they have multiple meanings that are actually um directly antithetical to one another uh du usually means poison but it there are also contexts in which it can be used to mean medicine um uh, uh, and similarly, yall um, is normally used to mean medicine, but then there are also contexts in which it can be used to mean uh, poison. Um and so I'm 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 interested in the way in, and then there's a, a, a an expression in Chinese, "yi du gong um to fight poison with poison. So essentially, taking the destructive potential of an element that's identified as a kind of a, a figurative poison and using it uh, productively, right? Using it to to fight a, a larger. Um, uh, a, a greater problem. And so I basically use the, the, this scene in the film as a way of sort of thinking about revolution itself as a kind of, um, figurative, um, um, uh, 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 uh and that it has both, uh, uh, uh Positive, productive, transformative potential, but then it can also be, have highly destructive potential, potentiality as well. The, the way that we have the mirror image of the Great Leap Forward and the, the ravages that resulted from it. And then it's mirror image 20 years later of the Reform and Opening Up movement, which attempted to, um, accomplish in, in a sense a very similar uh, set of objectives and did so um, um, productively and I argue that that the, that the notion of revolution or what Mao coins during this this, this very same period uh, in the late in the mid 1960s the notion of continuous revolution um, embodies that, that that structural tension of of, of of medicine and poison of of Panacea and of, of of destructiveness.
0: And of course the notion um, that probably comes to mind for listeners who are familiar with the um, with Derrida's work, Plato's Pharmacy, right, is this notion of the pharmacon and among other things, this chapter, which constitutes this part of the book, part two, also explores the ways that Du and the notion of the pharmacon are related and locates these relationships specifically in the figure of the knight-errant um, that is a figure in this movie, and it's a figure that we can understand beyond as well. And all of these are bound up, as you just mentioned, um, in a way to think about and talk about and understand revolution. So me sorry, did you want to?
1: No, yeah, I mean, that, um, and that, and that goes back to the question that you raised earlier, a point that you raised earlier, that the night Iran, um, occupies, traditionally occupies the space of the, the rivers and lakes, the jianghu. Um, and, and then I argue that there's an interest that traditionally the night Iran is, is imagined as a positive, Figure that's able to um, push back against um, official corruption or uh, abuse of power, and, and stands for an ideal of, of of righteousness and loyalty. But then I juxtaposed that figure of the Arant as it's developed in this particular uh, film, which is a, a, a uh wuxia film, but with the Cultural Revolution that was unfolding in China during precisely this, 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 this very same historical moment where the red guards, uh, in a way can, I argue could be seen as a parallel of this night Iran figure as, um, sort of independent, um, uh, agents that are driven by a sense of political righteousness, but then they end up having, um, uh, uh by many people's view, um, extremely destructive uh, 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 consequences um, to the point that uh, Mao ended up needing to to call off the or, or to bring them back within within only uh, a couple of years.
0: Right, and this idea of rivers and lakes as well is really interesting in this context. I'll just sort of mention this um, before we move to the third part of the book, in part because. Um, And and this is one of the things I really love about the book, is that so many threads are interwoven, and you you see just this fabric being produced by this interweaving of concepts we might not otherwise put together, and this happens throughout the book. But here, the movie that you're talking about, at least for most of the chapter, is ostensibly set in the Ming. Um, For those of us who work on medicine um, in the Ming, rivers and lakes is also a trope that comes up when talking about doctors, and especially wandering doctors in the Ming. So there's all kinds of really interesting ways um, that the different elements of what's happening in this chapter and beyond speak to each other. So as we move to the third part of the book. This is the final major section of the book. Um, We move to 2006 and we move to a part of the book subtitled Phantasms. 2006 also represents um, as the other two years did, both a year of no significance and also a year of profound significance when you contextualize it here. This was a kind of halfway point between China's entry into the WTO in 2001 and the announcement in 2011 that it had overtaken Japan as the world's second largest economy. Now, in many ways, this part of the book is very deeply connected between or very deeply concerned with the connection between the individual and the larger environment that they're part of. And specifically, a lot of the works we're going to look at um, in the time that we have remaining are very deeply concerned with environmental pollution on some level and in some way. Now, Chapter 5, which is subtitled Information, looks closely at SARS, and it does this by bringing us into a very, very interesting novel that began as an Internet novel before being published in print, and which looks at the spread of the SARS virus and also the spread of information about it. So can you um, open up Hufayun's novel for us a little bit? What, for you, is most important for us to understand about Ruyan at SARS.com and the larger arguments you're making in this chapter?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in the way in which the novel is not only about a process of contagion, um, and that is the... the um, the spread of the the SARS virus, um, in China, but then it's also about a process of, um, cultural contagion or the circulation of information. Um, and the novel was, um, uh, uh, he began writing it in 2003, um, uh, um, so the, the year of the, the SARS epidemic, um, and, uh, and this was a, a period in which the, the Chinese government and also to a certain extent, both the Hong Kong and the Taiwan government as well, uh, were trying to suppress, um, the circulation of information about, about the epidemic in the interest of public safety. Um, uh, but then, uh, In China, information was still getting out, um, and was circulating primarily over the internet. And so this is a novel that was itself initially published over the internet, was then banned, it was then republished, um, uh, um, and so it has. It, it basically came to life as an internet text before it was um, published in book form. Uh, but then it's also very explicitly looking at this process of um, a circulation of information uh, over the internet about the about the epidemic and the simultaneous attempts simultaneous attempts of, by the authorities to repress or to to to, 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 um, to suppress that that circulation. And so I. I'm very interested in, in how there's um, a, a metaphor that's developed very explicitly of how the attempt to suppress, it, it basically compares the um, an essays about the the epidemic to a form of, to kind of a monster, a kind of a guai wu in Chinese um, and saying that that, that the, the, the that, that they, they, they are published on the internet, the government suppresses them, um, uh, uh deletes the, the postings, but then that process of deletion encourages another resurgence of, of new postings to take its place. And so it's basically taking this, this, Figure that we see as um, productive, right? The circulation of information about an epidemic for the purposes of enlightening the public, and using a, a metaphor of monstrosity or even disease um, to describe its cultural logic.
0: So this chapter is taking, um, among other things, an epidemiological approach to understanding the circulation of information. It's doing this by taking us into SARS. Um, It does this not only by looking at this particular internet novel, but also late in the chapter by looking at a film, Golden Chicken 2. And now we won't have time to talk um, at any length about that, but I just want to signal that um, for listeners who might be particularly interested in the places in which film and cinema come into this book. are several places, and this is one of them, and there's some really interesting stuff happening around um, kind of information, contagion, bodies and body parts in this film, Golden Chicken 2, and the coda to this chapter as well kind of takes us out into the broader issues of the Great Firewall or the Golden Shield Project, what's called a kind of digital panopticon to explore the broader consequences of circulation of information and attempts to limit that for um, how we contextualize this chapter more broadly. Now as we move though from Chapter 5 to Chapter 6, still in the same year, we move from a concern with information kind of directly to a concern about capital. And this is a chapter that takes us into An extraordinarily moving and very, very disturbing um, example of a novel. Yan Lian Ke's Dream of Ding Village from 2006, which is actually inspired by some pretty disturbing um, accounts that Yan Lian Ke um, made of his own um, visit to AIDS villages in his home province. So, why don't I think the best thing f- right now is for you to just talk about what's most fascinating to you about this novel in terms of its broader implications for understanding blood, um, understanding what's happening in terms of AIDS here, um, and understanding this chapter.
1: Um, yeah, this is uh, a novel that I'm very, very interested in, and I also mentioned in Passing that um, I was so interested in the novel that I've actually become a, a translator of several of Vianca's novels. Um, so I didn't translate this particular novel, but I translated um two of his subsequent, um, his two, his following two English language novels and I'm now working on a third and a fourth. Um, so, um, as you said that he, uh, started, he's originally from Henan, which is sort of the epicenter of the, of the rural, um, uh, uh, HIV AIDS epidemic in China that was, um, and the primary vector of transmission in China, unlike uh, many other um, uh, uh, countries and regions, was um, basically infected uh, uh, um, equipment for um, use in blood transfusions or uh, um, blood collection. Um, and the irony here, the, 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 the sort of tragic irony, is that there was a surge in um, uh, uh, blood selling or blood purchasing uh, in rural China beginning in the mid late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, but the reason for this was that China basically limited um, uh, virtually all imports of foreign um, blood or or, 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 blood products in order to prevent the entry of HIV AIDS into China. And so this increased the need for domestic sources of, of blood. And so this, um, um drove, um, uh, uh, it created the, the need for lo- more, um, yeah, uh, uh, Chinese to, to, to sell their own blood for this purpose and that End up falling uh, disproportionately on on rural communities, um, and then that in turn created the 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 the, the, the um environment under which the HIV AIDS uh, virus was the HIV virus was then transmitted uh, through these communities. Some of the communities in um, Henan, um and adjo- adjoining provinces. Um, were were virtually decimated that um uh in some cases 60 70 even 80% of the community were, were ended up being infected so i'm interested in the relationship between um this use of selling blood as a way of 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 enrichment of modernization of um uh moving beyond the provincial community into a what's perceived as a, a more process of global modernization and the simultaneous way in which um, it was at the same time a portal for the entry of this um, um, community-destroying um, um, disease and all of the prejudices and uh, that, that came with it. <laughs>
0: And now some of it, you include um, early on in this chapter, some of Jan's own accounts of his visits to these villages, and they include, I mean, stories about, um, or accounts of diluting blood with beer to increase the volume, using soy sauce and vinegar bags um, as blood collection bags. So there's really, really interesting and very powerful um, stuff going on here in this chapter. And I just want to emphasize this to signal that for listeners who may not think of themselves primarily as being interested in Chinese literature or Chinese film, but who are deeply interested in medicine and health. Um, This is one of many examples here in this book of a really, really fascinating case study to inform a larger um, conversation about what you call um, early in the book medical humanities, right? And, And you talk about this early in the book, this idea of medical humanities, not in its um, sort of most common form, uh, right, of sort of um, giving a humanistic education to medical students right, in, in med schools, but rather um, using kind of medical um, notions and context to sort of inform um, how we understand and read work in the humanities and vice versa, and really just creating this dialogue. Um, so I just wanted to yeah. emphasize that. Here. I'll, also, <laughs> I'll
1: also quickly mention that this mm-hmm. is a novel that he himself feels somewhat ambivalent about. Um, and precisely for the reason that you just cited that there, this is perhaps more so than a lot of his other novels. This is something where he was torn between the, 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 Kinds of details, the the rich detail that he wanted to be able to include, based on his own personal experience with these villages, with these uh, um, these infected villagers, and uh, a sense of what would or would not be permitted or be able to get through the censors. And so he, this is. Uh, One of the novels that he felt feels that he self-censored more than uh, many of his others, um, simply in order to be able to get it into print. Um, And so he deliberately kept out a lot of the the more horrific uh, details um, that he discusses in the interview that you just cited.
0: So the chapter also, and we don't have, unfortunately we won't have time to talk about um, these other components at length so that we have some time to get to the last couple of chapters, but I want to just mark for listeners, this is a chapter called Capital, and in fact um, the the idea of commodification is very, very important here. You talk about, um, and you reflect here on capital and commodification in this context, processes of self-commodification, and so listeners who are particularly interested in blood selling right, and blood as a, as a product. Um, some of, um, I've, I've been talking to some people who have been writing about blood banking, right, and blood selling. There's some really interesting ways that this chapter puts um, ca- ideas of capital, commodification, self-commodification, commodity fetishism as well, into conversation with what's happening um, in these works and also in other um, of Yan Liang Ko's works and some of y- Yu Hua's works as well.
1: Yeah, I bring into dialogue with several of Yelinka's you know, other novels that include themes of selling of one's own skin for uh, burn victim hospitals, uh, prostitution, uh, a community of disabled villagers that, that perform their own disabilities. Lenin's so, yeah.
0: kisses, right? Lenin's. Exactly. Right. Right. It's right. great. So, Chapter 7. We won't have too much time um, to talk very much about this, um, but I just want to, again, mention it. This is a chapter that looks at Simon Liang's film I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, in addition to some other films. This is a film from 2006 that's focused on transnational circulation of labor, and in particular focuses on stranded guest workers in Malaysia. Now, I want to just mention um, this very briefly for you, Carlos, in part because it's a fascinating chapter, but also at several points in, at least a couple of the works that you talk about here in this chapter I don't want to sleep alone and also a work called the river the figure of incest um, recurs and this is really interesting um, for many reasons um, it's interesting in, insofar as you know the, the previous chapter was talking about kinship and relationship and blood um, and also just this idea of the you know the self and the other and the figure of incest just seems um, very interesting and, and seems to recur her and um, I'd just love for you to talk a little bit about that in the context of these films here and, and whether you feel like um, this is important
1: um, absolutely I mean just very briefly to go back to the opening preface um, and the discussion of homesickness um, in my discussion of that passage from the the mean, from the Qing dynasty novel I, I established or I, I proposed three different homologous, um, levels of analysis uh, for the understanding of homesickness and this this idea of homesickness as a force that is driving a process of external movement um, one is at the level of the body um, one is at the level of the nation uh, a process of exile at the level of the body, a process of 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 rejecting uh, internal pathogens or um um infectious elements. And then the other and then the third level of analysis um is, is at the level of the family. And I um talk about uh process of what Anthropologists might call exogamic imperative, right? That we have an incest prohibition driving a process of external movement between different clans, families, communities, et cetera, et cetera. And the argument that, that this in turn creates a set of social bonds between the clans, families, communities that then, um, are, 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 are very productive, right? So, so this idea of, of incest, taboo, representing a kind of a a node of a kind of fear of illness or a node of alterity that then drives the process of external movement and uh, creates a process of dynamism on which um, um, healthy communities are then, are, are then predicated. So, um, so the, yeah, the, we haven't really talked about it uh, for now, but really, um, themes of incest run throughout all the chapters or virtually all the chapters in the book. And I see them as being structurally parallel to what I'm trying to say about the role of illness with respect to the body and the role of a kind of a metaphorical illness with respect to, uh, 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 society and and, and political communities.
0: And they take on, so this theme takes on um, particularly striking relief um, in your look at both a kind of mother-son and then a father-son relationship in these two films. So I just wanted to mark this here so that listeners who are particularly interested in that um, know that they can find a a particularly um, salient discussion of this very um, important theme throughout the book in Chapter seven.
1: Just to illustrate, yeah. Um, at the end of the river, um, the river is a uh, tiny third film. Um, it's regarded as one of his most um, provocative or shocking. But the 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 plot revolves around a father's a father a, a son alienated from his parents. And, um, it can, the sort of the climactic moment at the end of the film, uh, involves an encounter between the son and his father in a dark, um, bathhouse sauna. They end up becoming, um, um, sexually intimate without realizing who, who they are because it's, it's dark and they can't see who they are. And then the light comes on. They, they realize that they've just been sexually intimate with one another, um, and are initially quite shocked, um, But then, uh, Tang both at the end of the film and then Tang's own discussions of the film, uh, he sees this as a moment of 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 liberation or of transformation. Right? That it it marks a moment of of paradoxical intimacy that the father and son have been searching for throughout the film, um, and that the the director himself um, says that he was unexpected by that turn of the the way in which that sequence developed, but then looking back at it as an outsider, he he also feels in, in a way sort of strangely liberated by it and, and and energized by it. so so sort of finding in that trove of incest, not kind of a, a node of 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 uh, unacceptable mm-hmm. sort of transgression, but rather as a, a site of something productive. Mm-hmm.
0: That's right. So as we come to the last body chapter of the work, we're going to do something that should be probably illegal, spending so little time on a chapter in a work that we easily could talk about for another hour. But here we are. Um, And and so let's do it. So this is a chapter called Membranes that focuses, among other works, on Yuha's novel Brothers. This is also um, something that is dated to 2006. Now, specifically, this is a work that... Foregrounds and, and you really bring this out in this chapter, the importance of a particular membrane, um, and this is the membrane of the hymen. And you talk about the ways that the hymen is symbolic here um, in terms of representing, as you put it, the limits of contemporary political communities. There's a National Hymen Olympic Competition. There's all kinds of ways that this is hymen a palooza here um, in this chapter. So could you maybe as a, you know, briefly, but it, it's important, I think, that we talk about this, talk about the hymen. Hymen here and, and sort of membranes, and how is this working in this book to make a larger argument um, in, t- in the service of what you're doing here in this chapter?
1: Um, yeah, now uh, the hymen is presented as very explicitly a, a kind of both a corporeal membrane. Uh, But then within this sort of this parodic farcical um, um, sequence that you just alluded to, is also simultaneously and very explicitly presented as a kind of a metaphor for um, national purity. Right. Um, The hymen is compared to the Great Wall. It's compared to this kind of. Uh, 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 bulwark um, uh, uh, affirming a, a kind of a contemporary Chinese uh, collective identity, um, but then it's simultaneous. But then, what's interesting for me here is both at the corporeal level, but then also at the at the at the national level. It, it's it's a membrane that derives its symbolic significance precisely from the possibility of its 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 its, its, its potential rupture. Right. Mm-hmm. That um, that the reason that. That the hymen has come to assume the the, the 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 symbolic significance that it has in our and many other cultures is precisely because it's a membrane that is, you know, in in in, in many circumstances, uh, all or, or under all circumstances, it always has the possibility of 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 being. Uh, uh, being ruptured, being broken, what have you, um, and so it's not really a symbol of of a, a, a boundary, but rather of a potential sort of um, um, point of interconnection between inside and outside, between self and other.
0: Thank you so much, Carlos. And um, so this brings us to the end of the body chapters. But at the very end of the book, we come back to a place that we started. And so to kind of bring us all together and, and at this point of conclusion, let's go back to Jianghu. Let's go back to rivers and lakes. At the very end of the book, you bring us back to this trope as a way to think about individual and collective action, and also to think more broadly, potentially, about humanity's position in the world beyond, specifically in the natural world. So as a way of bringing us to a close, can you talk a little bit about this idea of rivers and lakes lakes in terms of its broader significance here?
1: Um, Yeah, no, at the end of the book, I, I go back to the Richard Dawkins discussion that I this introduced at the introduc- introduction, and I don't really discuss in in those terms in the main body of the book, but I, in the conclusion, I returned back to not the selfish gene, but rather the major book that he, he wrote after the selfish gene, which is called The Extended Phagocyte um, Phenotype. Um, and the argument here is complex, but but to, the example that I cite, which I think is illustrative of the point that I want to make here, and also the connection with rivers and lakes, is he um, is saying what is the limit of the phenotype of of, of an animal or of, a, of 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 an organism? And he cites nice example. We think of a beaver. The beaver's phenotype is what it has sharp teeth, it has uh, waterproof fur, it has um, uh, 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 feet that allow it to swim. I mean, that's what we think of when we think of a beaver, right? That the, the, the physical characteristics that are derived from its uh, genome or the interaction between its genome and the environment. But then he makes the argument that, well, what do beavers do? Um, they have a behaviorally – there's a genetic – their be- genetic component uh, of their behavior, which drives them to, um, build dams. And then what do the dams do? The dams, um, 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 um change, uh, expand waterways. They, um, Create wetlands; they change the entire uh, flora and fauna of, of of the the local ecosystem. And so he argues that if we're thinking about the, the phenotype of the beaver, it's not limited to the physical characteristics of the organism itself, but rather it should, we should actually see the entire local ecosystem um, that derives from that results from this this process of dam building as part of the phenotype of the beaver as well. And so I use that as and then. I use that as a way of doubling back to the figure of the rivers and lakes and saying, well, if we, if that's true of beavers, then can we not use? Uh, think of humanity and human behavior in a similar way and to think of basically uh, humanity's extended phenotype as being the entire environment that we inhabit uh, or the entire global ecosystem but then also sort of thinking of this imaginary space of the rivers and lakes or the Chinese uh, Jianghu as representing both an extended version of our extended phenotype but then also a, a point of intervention Right, the way in which we can use Use our understanding of our position within these these various ecosystems as a way of of transforming our relationship with that ecosystem and um, basically addressing some of the ecological crises that that, that we're currently confronting at, at this moment.
0: Great. So, Carlos, thank you so much. We're now at the end of our time, and there's a million billion things that we didn't have a chance to talk about um, in the book. Is there anything in particular that didn't come up but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
1: Um, mm-hmm. I like several things I wanted to mention at the beginning, but now I can't – I don't even know what they are. I feel that – Oh,
0: that's
1: okay. there's a, Yeah, I don't even know where to begin. So uh, that's
0: no. Okay. And and um, I'll just mention that there's a ton like, interviews can't be um, comprehensive or, or represents sure. for the book. So there's a lot of individual works, a lot of aspects of the argument um, that readers or listeners will find when they become readers and pick up their copy of the book.
1: Excellent.
0: So, Carlos, um, now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What are you currently being inspired by?
1: Um. I, my, I'm i currently working on two books. One is on um, a Hong Kong director, uh, Fruit Chan. Um, he's someone who's been like Tammy uh, Yang. Uh, he's been directing films for almost precisely 25 years now. He's still continuing to direct films. He's someone I've been interested in for a long time, but I've always had trouble writing about. Um, and I was offered a contract to do a kind of a... Um, um, uh, an over or, or a book-length study of his films to date and so I sort of jumped at that opportunity um, and so that's one thing and then the second uh, which would be sort of along the line more closer to the, the kind of project that homesickness is is a project that is looking at issues of time and temporality um, and the ways in which time and temporality are uh, 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 are deployed uh, within a, a variety of, of cultural texts and the way in which basically trying to understand the, 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 the logics implicit in the ways that, 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 that we think of time in relationship, not only to history, but then also um, to um, um, uh, uh, a kind of a psychological or, uh, uh, sense of time as well.
0: Well, best of luck on both of those projects. Um, Happy writing, and, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure.
1: Great. Thank you, Carla.
0: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.